Let us pray. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. Amen. This week I had a wonderful chance, for those who missed it, I had a wonderful chance to attend the LBI Ignite event. It is a great event down at, at Lutheran High School in Irvine. And for five days, Dr. Tom Pearson, who's here and who, who I'm going to ask to share a little bit, um, he taught on Romans 1 through 3. It was, a wonderful, it was a wonderful week because we got to hear the gospel. we got to hear it clearly. And, and, and Dr. Pearson told us, and he said, if you understand the first three chapters of Romans, if you understand the argument that Paul's making, then you can understand the rest of the book. And so as I thought about those words all week long, I thought, you know what? I want to put them to the test. Let's see if that's really true. And so today's passage comes from Romans 10. And so let's, let's see if the gospel can really make sense of Romans chapter 10. Well, I looked at a couple verses. I wanted to keep them sort of together. So I'll begin with verse 10. Chapter 10 of Romans, verse 10. Chapter 10 says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. Now, anyone who's read the Bible and looks back to the Old Testament, you know that the prophets always spoke about the time when God would give his people a new heart. When they'd have a new heart to... to to truly be obedient and to, to keep the law, their hope, their hope was with a new heart, then they could really do the works of law. Why? Because the problem is their heart. They need a new heart. They need things right within, and then they could really be about obedience. But that's not what Paul says. Paul in chapter 1 says the only way to be obedient, the kind of obedience that God wants, the kind of obedience that will save us, it is obedience that's found in the heart but it's the obedience of faith. When you have faith in Christ, then you have an obedient faith. Paul even says in chapter 1, verse 5, he calls it the obedience of faith. So you have faith in Christ, in other words. You have all the obedience that God requires. You have the pinnacle of obedience just by having faith in Christ. Okay, that's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. I don't know about you, because I'm not very obedient most of the time. But if it's by faith, then I am. Praise God. Okay, let's look at the next verse. Verse 11. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in Christ will never be put to shame. Now, have we heard anything like that in chapter 1 in Romans? Do you remember what Paul says in, in, in verse 16? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Pretty good. Let's keep going. The next verse. Paul says in verse 12, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is there really no difference between Jew and Gentile? I mean, Really? I mean, Jews seem to have a very different culture than Gentiles. So how can Paul say there's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile? How can he say that? Well, if you go back to Romans 3, we hear the Apostle Paul say this. He says, all, that means Jew and Gentile, 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So maybe we're not different at all. And then he goes on to say, and all, Jew and Gentile, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. Why? Because all of us are sinners. And then all of us have redemption in Christ Jesus. So Dr. Pearson, I think you're right. Yeah, you too. Okay, I like that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I think it really works. But this shouldn't surprise us. The gospel shouldn't surprise us. As Lutherans, we know the importance of the gospel. We're taught it as children. We know that works can't save us. We know that being a good person can't make us, can't give us heaven. We know that we're not right by being decent. We're right because of Jesus, a faith that trusts Jesus. Right? The righteous by faith will live. Not the righteous by works or deeds or effort. The righteous by faith will live. But I'm not telling you anything new. Because you've learned this as, your, as children. I imagine your Sunday school teachers taught you this. In Lutheran churches, our, our catechisms teach us this. Our hymnals teach us this. We know that we're justified by grace through faith. We know this. Now, my wife, Jamie, loves this about the Lutheran church. She wasn't raised in the Lutheran church. She was raised in a church that said you have to do in order to be saved. And, and she thought that if she wasn't doing things well, then she wasn't really a Christian. She went to church every Sunday of her life as a child and never knew that we were saved by faith. Grace through faith. She'd never known that, never heard that, never once been told that. When she got in trouble, you know, she'd have to turn the scriptures going, am I really a Christian? That's terrible. And so she loves the Lutheran church. She loves Lutheran hymns. She loves this so much that she said, we're going to make sure our children know that they're saved not by works, by faith in Jesus Christ. It's so important. We need to know the mercy of God. What is the mercy of God? We've said in our gospel reading, we know what the mercy of God looks like. The mercy of God looks like you have the apostle Peter. And if you ever want to look good in your life, look at the disciples. They'll make you look really good, I promise. So you got Peter. Peter's the rock. He's the one who said, oh, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And yet this same Peter, Jesus calls out of the boat. Peter's walking on the water, and you go, hey, that's pretty good. He's walking on water. He must have great faith in Jesus. But then what happens? The wind starts blowing. The waves start moving. And he starts sinking. And what does he do? He cries out, oh, Lord, save me. Now, I love how Peter could have, or Jesus could have responded. Jesus could have said, you know, Peter, I just fed 5,000. You should understand what I do. You're sinking. You should sink. Or he should have said, he could have said to Peter, you know, Peter, Cephas, which means rock, you're about as smart as a rock. And you know what? You deserve to sink to the bottom of the ocean like a rock. But he doesn't. What does the mercy of God look like? The mercy of God looks like he reaches out. Jesus reaches out to Peter. 
grabs him and rescues him. That's the mercy of God. The mercy of God is shown to us in the waters of baptism where we are carried on our back, kicking and screaming, and there God reaches into the water. What does a child know about what's happening at baptism? Nothing. But God reaches down and grabs that child and says, you're a keeper. You're mine. I have a claim on you. That's the mercy of God. But I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know this. Your whole life has been about this. Your Sunday school teachers have taught you this. You've, you've drawn little pictures about this. You guys know the gospel. You should thank God for that. The question, though, is, even though you've heard the gospel many times, how many times have you actually shared it? How many times have you actually spoken the good news? Faith comes by hearing. How many times have you actually shared it? The righteous by faith will live. How many times have you actually spoken the words that give eternal life? I mean, it seems to me, and what one and Dr. Pearson's going to share this in a moment, but it seems to me that the gospel is our dirty little secret that we keep close to our own hearts, that we don't actually share with our neighbor or with our friends. It's something that we know, it's something we believe, it's something that we know is true, it's something that we know gives us eternal life. But to share it? Really? I don't think I can. I don't think I want to. I don't know if I know how to. The Gospels are, are a dirty little secret. I've shared this in the past, and I've said this as a joke, and it is a joke, so laugh when I'm said, done with this. But uh, I said a Lutheran, and it's usually mainline denomination, so Christians in general, invite someone to church. This is not share the Gospel. Just invite someone to church every 34 years. So I've shared with you before, invite three people this next week, and you never have to invite someone ever again. Yeah, then you have to get a fourth one sometime in your life. Right? Once every 34 years? That's not funny. That's terrible. Maybe the gospel really is our dirty little secret. That we don't want anyone at all to ever know about. And so we're silent. Now, Dr. Tom Pearson comes to us from, from Texas, and I've invited him to share a few stories of us of what happens when the Word of God is spoken, whether it's by an individual or by a community. What happens when the Word of God is actually spoken? Can it change people's lives? Can it bring life to the dead? And so I'm inviting Dr. Pearson to come forward here. So come on up. Dr. Pearson, you've had a busy week. I know you've worked every day this week teaching. But something you don't know is that Dr. Pearson was a pastor for 17 years. And then after that, you have, you've done many things. But one of the things that he does now, at least, is that he's, uh, he teaches. I've had a long week, I guess, too. He te teaches philosophy at the University of Texas in Pan America. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, Dr. Pearson um, has been on the mission field a number of times in Africa. And so he's, he's always busy going all over the place, really sharing the, the Word of God. And so if you can share with us just for a few moments, just the power of the Word of God. Okay. All right. 
Well, I'm delighted to be with you again today, um, and I, um, I take very seriously what, uh, what Pastor Lackey has been telling you here because um, this is something that has plagued my own life. Uh, I remember uh, when I was a pastor hearing this all the time from people, and I'm sure you've heard this too, maybe you've even said this to other people. Um, well, I'm not comfortable talking about my religious faith with other people. You know, I, I don't want to be, um, you know, one of those pushy people who, uh, you know, gets in people's faces and talks about Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'll let, I'll let people see my life, you know. I'll just sort of live out my Christianity and let people notice that. I'll tell you, I don't want anybody looking at my life and thinking they're seeing Jesus, <laughs> right? And you know the same is true for you. Do you want people looking at the way you live and saying, oh, yeah, there's Jesus, Right? I mean, how do you live when you are um, when you're not feeling well? When you're uh, upset? How do you live when you're really tired? How do you live when you're driving on the freeway? Yeah, yeah. Is that is that how you want people to see Jesus? I don't want people looking at my life to find Jesus. Because they're not going to find Jesus in the way I live. I'm a sinner. That's what they're going to see. So then how do we communicate the good news of Jesus Christ? We believe it, right? We believe that we have been saved by grace, not by our own works, not by our own efforts have we satisfied God, but God in his graciousness has reached out to us. We believe this. It's the dirty little secret, right? How do we then communicate it to other people? How do we tell them? Well, this passage that was uh, the basis for the sermon, is the basis for the sermon this morning from Romans chapter 10. A very special passage for me because it was the, the keynote reading at my ordination. Uh, I was ordained uh, here in California. I grew up in California. And I was ordained here uh, uh, many years ago uh, by a fellow. I don't know if you, anybody here remembers this name, but uh, Dr. Carl Segerhammer. Anybody remember that? Now they're all so young. Yeah. Here, you know, yeah. He was the bishop over, that was bishop when this church was started. So he was at the dedication of this congregation when it first began. Yeah. Forty-something yeah. years ago. He used to be the bishop of the uh, Pacific Southwest Synod of the LCA. And he was the bishop when I was ordained. And I was ordained in my home congregation up in the Bay Area. And uh, uh, I remember just before the ordination service began, Dr. Segerhammer pulled me aside. And he said, um, I want you to know, Pearson, that I'm Swedish. And that I was ordained in Sweden. Now that's important because when Lutherans first uh, when Swedes first became Lutherans, they became Lutherans because the Archbishop of Sweden, the Roman Catholic Archbishop, converted to Lutheranism and took everybody with him. That's how Sweden became Lutheran. But the Archbishop himself had been a Roman Catholic and was ordained and consecrated a, an Archbishop in the Roman Catholic Church. And so Dr. Segerhammer said to me, I was ordained in the Swedish Church which still has apostolic succession. So I, said Dr. Segerhammer, I am in the apostolic succession. 
And you, Pearson, you are being ordained into the apostolic succession. And then he leaned close into my ear and he said, so your ordination is going to really take. <laughs> well, that was the first thing that terrified me on the day of my ordination. I was being ordained into this long legacy of the apostolic succession, and I had the entire weight of the history of the church on my shoulders. All right? But then the other thing was this passage from Romans 10, which has those terrifying words in it, the words that say, how can anyone call on the Lord unless they believe in him? And how can anyone believe in the Lord unless they hear the word preached? And how can the word be preached unless there's a preacher? And how can there be preachers unless preachers are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who have been sent to proclaim good news. And that charge was being laid on me. Not only was I the inheritor of the apostolic succession, I also was charged with responsibility for proclaiming the gospel because nobody would come to faith unless I did. This is not good news for a guy getting ordained. <laughs> A lot of pressure, absolutely. See, I figured I'd be okay, though, as long as when I got into a, a congregation as a pastor, I did exactly what the, uh, the, the order of the liturgy said to do, you know, just follow the rules, and always use the real long form of the Eucharistic prayer, right? Which I know Pastor Lackey's a real fan of, so. Uh, as long as I follow the rules, I should be okay. But then I started to think about all the people in my life who had really proclaimed the gospel to me. Not by the way they lived, but actually taught me about Jesus. Said something to me, spoke to me about the faith, faith in Jesus Christ. I thought about my parents, who always were telling me about Jesus. I told the, uh, the class this week, uh, in, uh, we were, when we were doing uh, Romans 1 through 3, uh, my mother used this little trick. Maybe some other mothers here have done this. My mother used this little trick. She would always set at night the Bible open to a particular passage, which she'd have a paper clip next to. She'd set it on the sink in the bathroom right next to the toilet. So that when I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, there would be the Bible with the passage she wanted me to read. Right? Parents ever do that kind of stuff? Do you? No? No? Pardon? Hint, hint. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you know I, I like to go in the bathroom and read when I'm in there doing the stuff, and, and uh, she gave me something to read, right? My parents were often speaking the good news to me. My grandparents. I had one set of grandparents that came from Sweden and another set of grandparents that came from Bohemia. My Swedish grandparents were Lutherans, lifelong Lutherans, my Bohemian grandparents converted from Roman Catholicism to Lutheran. They were also always talking to me about Jesus Christ, about the gospel. I thought about my Sunday school teachers who taught me about Jesus. I thought about my pastors who taught me about Jesus. But it wasn't just the pastor. It was like the whole community witnessed to me. 
And I realized it wasn't just me as a new pastor that had this responsibility. It was the community that proclaims the good news. Well, how are we going to do that? Are we going to do it by our exemplary lives that are always so good that we'd be glad to have anybody look at what we're doing? I don't think so. None of us are going to pass that test. So we must speak it. We must tell people. We must preach it the way Paul tells us to in Romans 10. The word gets proclaimed by the community. It gets proclaimed by each person in the community, where they are planted, where they are set down by God, in the, the cluster, the network of all your relationships, all your responsibilities, all your tasks, all those things in which God has placed you, those are the opportunities to proclaim good news. And you know, when you think about your life, and you think about why you're here today, how did you get here? What, where did that faith come from that's propelling you to, to come and share with God's people in this worship? Where did that come from? Somebody said something to you. Somebody spoke a word to you. Somebody proclaimed the gospel, and it made a difference in your life. Maybe parents. Maybe grandparents, perhaps Sunday school teachers, perhaps somebody else in this congregation spoke the word that brought you to Jesus. I think that what Paul is saying in Romans 10 is said not just to me, nor to Pastor Lackey, but is said to each one of us. How can people call on the name of the Lord unless they believe? And how can they believe unless they hear the word? And how can they hear the word unless there is a preacher? We are all preachers of the word to one another and to all those with whom we come in contact every day. A good friend of mine down in our congregation in... Um, uh, in South Texas. Uh, he's an attorney. He's uh, an appellate attorney, fairly prominent appellate attorney down there. He was a former nominee to the Texas State Supreme Court. Um, uh, he has a saying about Lutherans. He says, all Lutherans are refugees. We are all refugees. We have all been, we've all fled from a broken world a world that is hurting, a world that is in chaos, a world in which there are a lot of other people who are looking for life and truth and grace. And we who have been caught up into another world, who are now the citizens of another country, God's country, we are called to proclaim good news to all those who are still in bondage. We are all refugees and all called to proclaim good news. I think that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 10. So don't be afraid to speak the word. Don't be afraid to say something about your faith to others. 
because only in that way will others, just like yourself, come to know the Lord. I think I'm done. Thank you, Dr. Pearson. One final word here that comes from a book that I just it helps tie it all together. It says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise. We must not keep silent. The silence is the darkness, and the darkness is the darkness of the tomb. But Jesus has been raised from the dead and has broken the silence forever. So speak it. Tell of the death and resurrection of Jesus until others get a taste for the kingdom of God. Speak of Jesus reaching down into the waters of baptism to save us. There is no shame in the gospel. Break the silence. Let the bird fly. Let the spirit take wing. It cannot hurt us and you'll be surprised, for the gospel is the power of God to save us and this world, both now and forever. Amen.